I'm going to put a picture up here on the screen, and um, this is a similar kind of scene. You've, you've seen things like this uh, at football games, at baseball games, um, other such big public events, and it is um, a ministry of the sign ministry, I saw it was called on one website, where people are trying to get out there in the most concise way, a simple invitation to consider the good news of the gospel. Of course, it's sometimes a conflicting sign because you might think that John 3.16, if you go there, it says, go giants, like he's footnoting that uh, praise for his team. However, this is um, one of those concise passages where verse 16 summarizes very well the good news of salvation in Jesus. For God loved the world, they gave his only son, that whoever believes would not perish but have eternal life. And um, I would say that with Romans 5.8 are the two most concise definitions of the gospel. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I'll bet that if I started that quote again from John 3.16, at least half of you could finish it. For God so loved the world that you could complete that statement. But I would be surprised if very many of you could quote John 3.18. You have to look down real quick and like see, where, what is it? What is it? John 3.18. It says, whoever believes is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the only name of the Son of God. And that speaks to something that is very uncomfortable to us. This passage that is so famous for the love of God also speaks about judgment right there in the context. If we read the whole thing of chapter 3, we see salvation, and it's salvation from condemnation. And this is the verdict. It says in verse 19, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Now, that's a really, really tough passage. It's weighty. And we wrestle with that. The contemporary mind in our culture wrestles with that idea of a God who actually is a God of judgment as well as love. And what um, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4 is helpful. It says, in the case of those to whom the gospel is veiled, the God, lowercase g, God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the God, Satan, the God of this world, the lowercase g God, has blinded the minds of people to keep them from seeing the light, seeing the good news. He keeps them in darkness, and they don't realize it. So they don't even know what the message is. They don't know what Christianity teaches. And there's a really big deception right now out in contemporary culture. And the big deception is, it's a half-truth, which is how the father of lies tends to work. It's a half-truth, and it's framed in the, in the way of a question. And tell me if you've heard this question, or maybe you've asked this question yourself. How could a loving God be wrathful? Or maybe people word it this way. I I get that Jesus loves people, but then I look in the Old Testament, and I see this God of wrath judging people and condemning people and, you know, and endorsing military conquest and wiping people out of the land of promise. And how could God be loving and also wrathful? That doesn't make sense. And that's a complaint that people have against God. And what it does is it actually keeps them blinded to the truth, that while God is loving, He is also wrathful, and the two are connected. Wrath is not the opposite of love. Hate is the opposite of love, and hate carried out to its fullness is indifference. So, hate and indifference are the opposite of love, not wrath. Wrath is a disposition against sin. God 
hates sin. And, and think of it this way. If a truly loving person, let's, let's imagine a household where one of the parents is severely afflicted with an addiction, whether it's an addiction to gambling or drugs or whatever, after a while, the daughter or son of that kid or of that parent will start to hate the drink, will start to hate the drugs, will start to hate the compulsion. And that's, that's because they love their parents, and they see that this is killing their household. It's wrecking the family. It's wrecking everything. And so being wrathful against sin is not a bad thing. It's actually the, the, same, it's the same coin just from the other side. Love and wrath go together. And you could even point the question back to the person who says, well, I can accept a loving God. I just can't accept a wrathful God. You could ask the question this way. What kind of a God could ignore sin that hurts his beloved? If the sin hurts the one that he loves, how could he possibly love them if he didn't do something about the sin? What kind of a God is that? That's not a loving God. That's a neglectful God. That's a dismissive God. It's a God who's indifferent. It's a very cold-hearted God, a distant God. Not the God of the Bible, for sure. Definitely not the God of the Bible. Furthermore, the fact that God has wrath against sin and is, and is bringing judgment on sin enables those of us who follow Jesus to turn the other cheek as he commands us. If I don't think that God is going to bring justice in, in my world, then I'm going to go do it, right? How can I have the resources to say, hey, listen, don't just take that. Take my tunic as well. If you're going to steal that, here, take this. Oh, hit me on this side, fine. Hit me on the other side. I'm not going to strike you back because vengeance belongs to the Lord, he will do justice in his way in his time. But if there's no idea of God's justice, then what are we left with? We're going to have to do it ourselves. And so we will have a very violent culture, even much more so than we do already. Maybe in some ways we have a violent culture because people don't believe that God's wrath is going to bring justice. So the first question is, what kind of God could ignore sin that hurts his beloved? But the God of the Bible is a God of love and also wrath because of his love. And that's one of the deceptions of the, the God, lowercase g, God of this world, is he is deceiving people with the way he words his questions. He gets us to ask questions like, how could a loving God send people to hell? And we'll deal with that question in a minute. Another thing that's so interesting is that there is a blindness that keeps us from seeing our blindness, that, that we can be blind and we don't know that we're blind. I'm talking spiritually now. Look at what happens in verse 3. We didn't read this whole encounter, but Nicodemus, a Pharisee, comes to Jesus and says, you've got to be from God because you're doing these incredible miracles. And Jesus hits him with kind of a, a tricky statement. He says in verse 3, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It could also be translated born from above, either born from above or born again. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You can't even see it. And there's a blindness in the religious group here that Nicodemus belongs to that they can't see that they are rejecting the very Son of God. They are blind to their own blindness. And those of us in this room who are actually followers of Jesus, who are Christians, now know that we couldn't see before and we didn't even know we couldn't see. Once we came to see and God took the blinders off of our eyes and we went, whoa, this is good news, we realized we were walking in darkness and we're totally ignorant of it. We didn't know that we didn't know. That's a weird place to be. And you know what else is a little bit scary about this is 
these Pharisees didn't realize that the way they were living and their blindness was from evil. Jesus said to them, you're doing the works of your father, the devil. And what were the works of the Pharisees? Virtue, morality, intense Bible study. That's what they were doing. They, had, they, they were like super virtuous people. They were doing lots of external good deeds, and they were obsessed with studying the Bible and quoting it, and they knew it back and forth, at least the Old Testament. They didn't have a New Testament then. So these were virtuous Bible believers, and Jesus said, you're doing the works of your father, the devil, because they were rejecting the Son of God whom the Father had sent, and they didn't even realize it. So that's a scary thing that the Pharisees were able to be blind and didn't know it. And so what that does is that asks or should ask us this question. Could I be blind and not know it? Could you be spiritually blind and totally unaware of it? You can't see the good news. You don't actually know what the gospel is. Is that possible? Now, Nicodemus is a case study in the progression of moving from skepticism to faith. And he is very interesting in this passage to me because he's in touch with physical things, but he's not in touch with the spiritual realities that, that undergird and bring meaning to those physical things. So when Jesus says, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God, Nicodemus goes, well, certainly a man when he's old can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. And he's confused. He's thinking physical down here, and Jesus is speaking spiritual up here. And he's challenging Nicodemus to consider. Now, Nicodemus comes to him at night. He's sneaky. He doesn't want to be seen by his colleagues that he's really starting to warm to this, this new preacher guy who's doing incredible miracles, but he can't deny the power of the miracles. He knows God is at work there. So he's starting to get some spiritual intuition. This can't possibly be happening if Jesus didn't have God with him. How do I understand this? So he sneaks out at night and he asks Jesus about it. Now, one of the things I really like about Jesus is he doesn't judge him whatsoever for his cloak and dagger attitude, his little clandestine visit. He sneaks there, and Jesus doesn't make fun of him for it at all. doesn't even call attention to it. He merely receives him and begins to engage him in a spiritual conversation. I'm grateful for that about the Lord, that whatever little bit you extend towards him, he receives it and helps you come further. That's just how the Lord is. But Jesus then begins to challenge some things. And in here, he says, you don't believe what we are saying. We are giving witness to what we've seen and what we've heard, and you don't believe it. But he's using a plural you there, and the footnote tells you that. So not you, Nicodemus, but you, Nicodemus, and all you Pharisees and all of you people that I've come to, you don't receive this. You're not receiving the message that God is sending. You see that I'm coming from God because I'm doing these incredible miracles, but you're rejecting me. You can't hear my words. So even though he's talking about spiritual things, or Nicodemus is on physical things, Jesus begins to encourage him. He begins to talk to him about spiritual stuff. So Jesus speaks on heavenly matters. And what he does is he talks about Moses. Now you remember, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, I talked about how God works through a pattern, a person, and a plan. The pattern is the type, the typology, the way that God works with his people kind of repeats. He uses similar patterns. And here in verse 14, we see one of those. So this is what Jesus says, starting to encourage Nicodemus into a spiritual conversation. <clears throat> in verse 14, he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. 
In Numbers chapter 21, the Israelites are in the wilderness, and they are grumbling. They are grumbling against God. They're complaining because God is only providing bread from heaven, miraculously, that falls like the dew, and they want other things. And they're tired of wandering, and they're tired of God working on their character, and they start grumbling and complaining. And to help turn their hearts back to Him, He brings judgment into the camp. And poisonous snakes in large number come in and begin biting the Israelites. And several of them, many of them, it says, die. But then what he says to Moses is, I want you to make a a golden snake and hold it up on a staff. And anyone who's been bitten, if they come and look at the serpent, they will be healed. And it doesn't matter if they've just been bitten or the venom has really taken its toll, wherever they are, it doesn't matter. Anyone who comes and looks will be healed. So they've got a fatal poison in them, and then God provides something that if they look, spiritually, they're extending belief. If they have the faith to trust that God is providing, they will come and they will look at this, and they will be healed and will live. Now, that's a type, a pattern. Do you see? Jesus is saying, just like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And lifted up is an expression in those days for dying on a cross. So Jesus will die on a cross, he'll be lifted up, and those who look to God's provision will be healed. There is a poison in every person that is killing us spiritually as well as physically, but God has provided the anti-venom, if you will, and that is Jesus lifted up on the cross, and those who look to him will be healed and will be saved. So I've been talking so far about blindness, spiritual blindness. Now, I, want, I don't want this to be a downer kind of a sermon. I want good news, and I'm going to encourage you. And I have four things that I'm going to share that are good news from this passage that encourage us. But you have to see the situation to understand the goodness of the news. The first point is this. For God so loved the world. God is not playing favorites. He is not discriminating in any way. He has love for the entire world. The Son of Man is lifted up on the cross that everyone might come to him. So it's not just for Israel. It's for all people of whatever ethnicity. And we see that play out in the book of Acts after Pentecost, after the Holy Spirit comes, where Peter, the apostle, is doing missions work, but he's doing it just to the Jews. And he gets a vision to go to a Roman centurion's house. His name is Cornelius. And when he's there, the Holy Spirit falls, and Peter learns this lesson. Surely, the good news is for all people, and God is teaching us that. And so they they then begin to do missions work to both Jews and Gentiles alike. And anyone who looks upon Jesus with faith is received in. And that's what the Bible teaches us, that the good news is for all people, not for any select group, whether it be, you know, an ethnic group or a socioeconomic class or male or female, educated, uneducated, it doesn't matter. The good news is there for all people. Second, to believe is freedom from condemnation. So those who are in Christ Jesus are no longer condemned. They are no longer going down the path to destruction. They're set free from that and free to serve free to serve the Lord, free to worship Him, free to step into your perfect design intention. God designed you to function under His authority and in relationship with Him. And the poison, the venom that's in every person because of our original disobedience to God is telling us not to submit to Him, that God is bad, that He steals our freedom, that He hurts us, that He can't be trusted. That's the lie that is in us. And what it does is it leads us down a path to destruction, And C.S. Lewis puts it this way. He says, there is something growing in each one of us that will become hell if it's not nipped in the bud. 
And if you think about addictions and how they work, it's, it's like, C.S. Lewis says, it's like a grumble, a little complaint that starts. It starts to grow in you, a complaining, a grumbling, and at first you can even see it as something bad and, and not like it. But eventually it will keep growing more and more, and then you'll start to blame other people for it, and then you'll start to blame God for it, and before you know it, you can't stop that anymore, and the grumble is now against God, and you won't turn to Him. You continue to go into yourself, and there's no longer any you left, just the grumble. And this thing goes on and on and on. That's the definition of hell. It's not God sending people to hell. It's people choosing that instead of repenting and coming to him. And what C.S. Lewis says is that thing is in each one of us, and it has to be nipped in the bud before it grows, before it gets to be full hell. And that's the offer of good news. So we get freedom if we say, God, this thing is in me, and you've got to take it out. You've got to put it to death because I can't help. When you do that, he nips it in the bud, and he begins to set you free to choose to worship, whereas before you couldn't. That is really good news. Now, the third thing is that then you get new birth from above. Unless a man is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God, Jesus says in verse 3. And then a little later, he says he cannot enter the kingdom of God in verse 5. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he says. In other words, Spiritual birth through baptism is the water part, and born of the Spirit is when, you're, when you become a believer, God's Spirit comes and dwells in your heart and, and gives you life. That was the thing that was so staggering to me about the Pharisees studying the Bible that they couldn't see. All through the Old Testament, God talks about this. A favorite place of mine is Ezekiel 36, where God says through Ezekiel, in these latter days, I will put my Spirit in the people. I will give them a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. They will begin to want to obey my laws. I will bring new life. And if you want to read something that is so cool, but it's also really freaky, read Ezekiel 37. It's this vision of a valley of dry bones, all these dead dry bones out in a valley. And God tells Ezekiel to start prophesying to them, and they rattle together and stand up, and then he speaks to them, and then flesh comes on them, and then he speaks again, and then God's breath comes into them, and now they're alive. And they were dead, dry bones. And it's an image of what happens when we repent and turn to God. Our rattling, dead, dry bones come together, and he puts new life into us. We begin to be born from above. That's where you get the term born-again Christian, although sometimes that comes with some negative ideas. Born from above. We are now spiritually alive, whereas before we were dead. So we have true freedom then to serve the Lord. So it's for the world, it's freedom from condemnation, and it's new birth from above. And then the fourth and final thing is this. God's love can be experienced now. It can be experienced in this life. It says that those who are deceived refuse to come into the light because their deeds were evil. But when we come into the light, instead of being judged, we find that we are set free. We meet God there, and as we just sang, it's on His grace that we stand, and His grace will carry us through, and we begin to be empowered to do the deeds He's asked us to do. Like it says in verse 21, whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. We have a new joy in loving God back. For God so loved the world, we actually start to understand his love for us, that he has saved us out of our predicament, and, and he's made us alive, and so we want to worship him. We begin to love him, not for what he can do for us, just for his own sake. We have now become worshipers of the living God, and that is incredible, and these works are done in him. Now, Nicodemus, let me go back to him as a case study. He starts out as a skeptic and sneaks to Jesus under the cover of darkness. And in chapter 7, something happens where the Pharisees have sent officials to go and arrest Jesus and bring him in so they can accuse him and judge him. 
But when they show back up, they don't have Jesus. And they say, well, where is he? And they all say, well, we, no one's ever talked like this. This guy has crazy, awesome authority. We're not going to lay hands on him. And, and they say, you've been deceived too. And they dismiss it. And then Nicodemus speaks up. He's starting to get courage. His faith is, is starting to be kindled. And he says, well, does our law condemn a man without at least hearing what he does? And then they judge him and say, look into it. No prophet comes from Galilee. And they kind of just write him off. But now he's out. He's not hiding at night. Now he's beginning to, in public, begin to question. He's asking good questions. He doesn't have all the answers yet, but he's starting. And then the only other time Nicodemus occurs in the Bible is at the crucifixion. When Jesus is finally lifted up on the cross, Nicodemus comes and he asks, along with Joseph of Arimathea, if he can receive the body down, and the two of them prepare Jesus' body for burial, and they bring him and put his body into the tomb. Now he's publicly serving Jesus, even through caring for his dead body. Nicodemus is converting. He's, I don't know at what point, you know, and there's a mystery in that, and I'm not worried about that, but I see a, a trajectory for Nicodemus that is very different than the trajectory of the addicted person who's addicted to self. You know, the way addiction works is I get a little bit, and there's a thrill, but the next time I need more, and the thrill is less. And I need even more, and then the thrill is less. And there's a trajectory to that, which is going down a path that is the hell path. The other path is I start to serve God, and I find that he's good. And I, and I come to him, and he doesn't judge me. And I ask for help, and then he helps me. And I start to realize he actually loves me. And so I begin to worship him. And now there's a different trajectory. I'm going to be with the Lord, and that's all that I want. That, there are two paths, and that's what Jesus teaches Now, in closing, let me address two groups of people. I want to speak to the skeptic, and I want to speak to the Christian. If you're a skeptic, I want you at least to be able to articulate what the basic Christian teaching is and not propagate the lie that the devil keeps saying. So rather than say, oh, how could a loving God send people to hell? You need to understand the Bible nowhere, nowhere shows that. There is nowhere that God sends people to hell. In fact, when it describes the fire, the lake of fire, that, that's prepared for the devil and his angels. It is not prepared ever for people. God never intended that. And when you look at the scriptures, you see a God who says, all day long, I've held out my hands to people and said, come to me. If you would just come to me, I would heal you and forgive you and restore you. I think in this Navy town where we've got an air base right here, I think it'd be helpful to give you a military illustration. And if you think of a helicopter hovering over the water, out in the middle of the ocean. The idea of a loving God sending people to hell is like him saying, you're in my helicopter and I don't like you, get out. And he shoves somebody out down into the perils of the water. That's a very different illustration than what the Bible shows, which is much more like this. There's a person in a sailboat and a big storm is coming and they're going to sink. And so they fall into the water and they're in trouble and the helicopter comes and God himself jumps into the water at great personal injury and harm and then begins to try to get the person onto the ladder and pulled up. And the person is kicking him and punching him and fighting him and saying, no, no, no. All day long, I've held up my hands and said, come on, I can help you, I can help you. And the ones who yield and say, okay, all they have to do is yield and say, okay, then his strong arm grabs you and lifts you up. He then does it all. But so many people sit there fighting and say, no, God, no, God, no, God. You'll steal my freedom. You're not a good God. I don't love you. I don't want what you have. I'd rather drown in this ocean because this is real freedom. It's not. It's not real freedom. So if you're the skeptic and you think about that, look at what the Bible says. There is nowhere in here that shows a God pushing people out. 
But in here is everywhere God's saying, come to me. I love the world. I don't want anyone to perish. Would you just come and let me love you and heal you and bring you in? Now to the believers in the room, let me ask you this question. Now that you see what he's done for you, how is it that we get so apathetic in worship? How is it that we go through the motions? How is it that we get weary? We need to worship with passion. We need to sing these songs like we believe them because our life has been transformed. We need to become people who rejoice even in suffering and hardship because of we know where this ends. We know where God is believing us. May that be true for our church, that we would be people who worship in spirit and in truth with passion because we love the Lord and we know what he's done for us. Amen. I want to pray, and then we're going to pray for the church and for the world. So let's bow our heads, and then I'll ask our prayer leader to come up and lead us in a time of prayer. Father, I thank you for your good news. I thank you that you love us. Lord, forgive us for being complacent. Forgive us for judging you for something you're not. Thank you for being patient and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Lord, help us to receive your love this day. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite you to, to kneel, and we're going to join in a time of prayer, lifting up the church and the world. Church and our nation and the world. I invite you to engage with the Holy Spirit. Use this as an opportunity to pray to the Lord. Let's pray. O Lord, our, our Father, grant that all who confess your name may be united in your truth and live together in your love. May we reveal your glory to the world. I, the people of this land and of all the nations in this world, in the ways of justice and peace, that we may honor one another and serve the common good. We pray specifically for the areas of this world that are torn apart by war and strife, we pray for refugees. We pray for those who are hurting. Come rescue, Lord Jesus. We ask, Father, that you would bless all those whose lives are, are closely linked with ours, our friends, our family, our co-workers, our neighbors. We ask that we may serve them And love them as you love us. Father, we pray for the needs of this church, both tangible needs and spiritual needs. Please move on our hearts to walk in freedom. Break the chains of materialism that bind us and 
Transform us so that we may be generous with our time, our talent, and our treasure to things that matter, your work and your mission. In all that we say and all that we do, Lord, make us mindful, put in the forefront of our mind your coming kingdom, that we may serve you as our Lord, our master, our king, and our friend. Father, we pray for a revival in this church, that your Holy Spirit would descend on this people. Make us not lukewarm, but a people that are on fire for you. Please comfort and heal all those who suffer, whether it be in body, mind, or spirit. Give them true courage and true hope in their troubles and bring them to the joy of your salvation. We pray specifically for members of this church who are hurting, for Gail, for Sybil, Bob, Joey, Losi, Bonnie, Libby, Roberta, Yahya, Elizabeth, Sandy, Carol, Steve, and Jared. I invite you to lift up by saying their name aloud, people in your life who you need to pray for because you love them and care for them. Pray for Anna. pray for those who mourn. We pray for Yvette Cooney on the death of her father. We pray for the Cooney family. Lord, there is hope in you. We rejoice in that. Now we'll recite together the Lord's Prayer. <clears throat> 